Hello, hello. Welcome to a brand new episode of the SaaS Prince podcast, the podcast for content marketers in SaaS. And I'm your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how content is consumed today and how we marketers can stay relevant to our respective audience. To discuss that, I'm super excited today to be talking to one of my longtime friend, a guide, eternal supporter, and my personal bouncing board, Casey Hill. Casey is super, super knowledgeable about all things sales and marketing. And I particularly love his approach to customer feedback, the way he grew Bonjoro, and his ability to leverage owned and earned media. He's someone who any CEO would love to have on their team. He's currently the growth manager at Active Campaign. And now, without stealing any more of his thunder, hey ho, let's go. Hey, Casey, I'm super happy to have you here. How are you? I'm doing phenomenal. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a crazy time right now in the world of content. So many gears changing. So I'm looking forward to getting into this conversation. Absolutely. I'm super excited. You know, one of the first things that I think uh, we can get started with is when you look at LinkedIn, you know, pretty much everybody is talking about, hey, in the, if you're in the world of content, let's start not just looking at it as content, but let's build a media company. First of all, mm. what does that even mean? You know, uh, what does it mean? Do you even agree with that uh, point of view? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. So the shift to looking at uh, kind of building a media channel, if you think about what a media channel is, it's out there to inform, it's out there to entertain, right? And it's very top of funnel. So I think that the impetus that is driving people towards a media kind of company angle is a good one, but I'll kind of add some caveats or some some things around it. So that push to say, we need to take a step back from being directly promotional. Let's try to provide content that is going to be generally digestible. And by doing that and having it be as broad as possible, there's some inherent benefits. So there's lots of examples, right? Uh, the HubSpot podcast network, the acquisition of, of big newsletters like The Hustle, um, profit and um, profit well, which is now paddle has done a great job with some of their top of funnel shows where they've created content. Like should Chipotle have a subscription, right? Just things that are very generally applicable to the audience. Even if Chipotle isn't going to be one of their target customers, a lot of people have been to Chipotle. Um, and so therefore they can kind of relate to that. So I think this idea that folks are looking at, how do we start taking a new lens to content that is not just, we're the best fit. It's kind of like this down funnel. We're the best fit for people because of X, Y, Z and trying to move it up a little bit to grab more eyes. I think that is great. I think though, the important thing here is the win of creativity. So the cautionary tale here is just becoming a media company for the sake of becoming a media company. If it's not something that you have a passion around, if it's not something you're genuinely looking to research or understand or uncover, and you're kind of just moving in this thread, it's the same for any channel. It's the same for podcasting. It's the same for your newsletter. It's the same for your blog. There is a massive amount of filler content in the world today. So I think that you have to approach it with the right standpoint of genuinely trying to contribute something interesting, applicable. Um, if you do that, I think there's a lot of potential there, but there's a lot of people that probably aren't executing on that in the right way and are kind of maybe burning time and resources. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to get to as well. You know, uh, in, in the quest to being a media company, there's a lot of burn and uh, people are creating so much of content. And many times it is not tied to any um, particular strategy of an organization as such. So let's, you know, because most of our listeners are also from relatively SMB kind of companies. And typically these people have about two to three people on their marketing team. So let's imagine that, you know, one of them is a content marketer. There is one person in product marketing and then probably one person is running ads. Now with this kind of a setup, how do people actually go about building that kind of a media company? Is it even worth it? You know, everybody aspires to be somebody like Lavender or somebody like Gong. Um, but is it worth it? Or like you would say that, hey, this is my structure. This is the team right now. Let me focus on my priorities and not try to burn myself out looking at somebody else. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the answer is, the, the frustrating answer is, right, that it depends, right? I'll, I'll give you an example. Like one of the things, 
One of the things that I'm toying around with is the idea of a debate podcast where you get two people on who have opposing views in the industry. You grab really broad topics like, say, return to office policy. That's a hot button topic right now. Or should employees be allowed to have side gigs? Or is it even good if employees have side hustles? I see absolutely that you could bring on two people who are prominent in a space who have um, a great discussion, but they come from different standpoints, right? Because I've seen out there, like Jason Lemkin is a person I know and respect, and he's gone out there and said, I don't think that employees should have side gigs. I think it's a distraction. There's been other people like Sam from Pavilion and a handful of others also really prominent that have said, I think it's great. I think it's positive, right? So you can imagine that- Sign me up for it. I would love to debate it. Right. Even if you were, were, uh, you know, an SMB, even if you had a small team, if you could foster a meaningful conversation like that, I think that that show would get a ton of attention, right? Hopefully nobody uh, steals the idea here. But the reason I mention that is because I think it shows that if you have creative, unique ideas, I think you can go out there and you can make plays like this that will draw in a lot of attention. But the caveat, but in a lot of cases, if you're just putting out something that's kind of filler, you're often going to be much more fitted to capture demand, right? Or maybe have an ABM oriented strategy or, you know, one of these other areas. I think one thing I would just say generally for this is SMBs really need to think about the strengths of their team. Some people are great speakers. Some people are great writers. Some people are really resourceful. Some people are great at networking and kind of creating relationships. What is the makeup of your team? Who are those folks? Because I got this question recently where someone's saying like, well, what's, what's the best organic growth lever for an SMB? And I said, any answer I gave to that, any answer to that question would be inauthentic without knowing your team, right? Because I don't know if, if one of your team, maybe someone's super introverted, they're not comfortable on a stage and I'm going to go say, oh yeah, go do a podcast circuit. And maybe that would be a disaster because they, they wouldn't have a good time, right? Um, so that's kind of what I would say with a small team, lean into your strengths, find the channels that help amplify that. And when you get success there, it allows you to hire more people and to bring on more skill sets and continue to expand the type of thing. So I wouldn't say a small team cannot do a media strategy. Although I would say probably in more cases than not, it might be a very risky choice if you have very limited bandwidth. That would be my take on it. No, I absolutely love it. I think it's it's a very practical answer because at the end of the day, it highly depends on the DNA of your team. As you said, if there are certain people who have certain skill sets and if you're putting them on things that they don't enjoy, then it's a disaster for both parties. Absolutely. And yeah. on that note, you know, let's, let's also uh, look at it from a consumer standpoint. Um, what do you see in the industry today? Like how are people um, consuming content? You know, of course, uh, when it comes to video, I see more and more shots getting popular rather than actually the full length videos. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, LinkedIn posts are much easier to consume than a, a full fledged blog post or an ebook. What are your observations? Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head, which is the first major thing is skimmability. So I think it's really important to note that when someone sees an article that says seven ways to do X, Y, Z, here's the way that the vast majority of us process that. They go into that article, they say, not relevant, not relevant. Okay, I don't think we could do that. Don't have the resources. Oh, that 0.5, that's kind of interesting, right? I'm going to write that down or I'm going to look at it. So people are looking for that one nugget of wisdom in your seven ways to do that, 11 ways to do that. And it, this is across the board. It's the same thing for podcasts, same thing for other channels where someone's going to listen and they're going to say, okay, I kind of know that. I kind of know that. And then at minute 20, that unique nugget pops out and the person's like, oh yeah, I want to try that. So, so what does this functionally mean? I think what it functionally means is it's super important to have all of your content, video and otherwise have a skimmability test. For video, have anchors, right? Make it easy. Like you see on the YouTubes where it's like, go to minute 11 and jump into this content, right? Have that summary. For content, have right at the top, we're going to be talking about XYZ. That's super helpful. Mutiny runs a newsletter that I really respect. I think it's a great newsletter. I encourage people if they're looking for inspiration to go check it out. One of the things Mutiny does at the very top is they say, in this newsletter, we're going to be talking about this, this, and this right off the bat. So someone can identify this isn't relevant to me or oh, 0.3, I'm going to skim down and then they can get to that, to the kind of core of the wisdom. So I think people consume content like that today, as much as you can make it skimmable, as much as you can make it digestible, 
that is really the heart of it. And if you're going to create long form video content, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a webinar, whatever, you hit the nail on the head. You need to be able to extract those sound bites that include the specific takeaways. Because often there's a lot of great conversation. It's going back and forth. But people who are listening to business business podcasts, they want to walk away with specifics, specific takeaways, specific things they can implement or think about. And so that's where making sure that you're, if you're a person who's creating those kind of assets, use Descript or whatever kind of platform you want, parse out those insights. Um, I think that's super important. On this note, I would also like to share one experiment that uh, I tried last year, which was pretty interesting. It was like, you know, we looked at um, several of those SaaS blogs and one of the fundamental things, you know, when you think about it, it looks like, oh, this is absolutely stupid. The thing is, you look at it, majority of these sites have these um, share buttons of social media. And the fundamental question that I got to ask myself and my team is that, hey, how many times do you go on to a SaaS website, read a blog and say that, hey, I'm going to share this on social media. It rarely happens, right? So when I went about interviewing at least about 25 to 30 people, knowing that these people are regular consumers of my blog, I discovered about two simple things. Just like you said, you know, they skim and they are probably going to get at one of those points, which is really interesting to them. So I need to make the headings clickable or at least have a TOC on the side that they can skip to and get to the crux of it. That's number one. Second is uh, instead of those share button, I understood their workflow. The workflow was pretty simple. It was like, if I'm going to look at this and if it is this really something useful and I want my team to follow these instructions to get something done, I'm going to copy paste it on Microsoft Teams or Slack or whatever their internal communication tool is. So all I need to do is copy the URL. So I just put a button saying that, hey, did you find this useful? Share it with your team, copy URL. And as simple as that, and this immediately changed the perspective. And we immediately saw the number of shares actually go up and uh, direct traffic started to increase. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it makes sense. It makes complete sense. That's the exact way that I operate. You know, it's funny. I was, we were actually having a conversation about comparison articles and I actually shared the Avioma uh, comparison articles and the little bar that you guys have on the side where they can click in and they can see more. I think it's a great example of a non-promotional take, right? To content, which is also something that's, I'm such a bullish advocate for people taking a step back and trying to build real trust by being more impartial. Companies are so uncomfortable with that. And especially in comparison articles, they do a horrible job. But the whole thing is, can you get content that actually ranks well? How is it going to rank well? If it has high trust, if people want to link to it because it's actually genuinely valuable and it's not just you know completely partisan. Um, so I think that's that's great. And I love the link example. It would be even interesting to play around with, could you create like little shareable snippets that would make it easier for people to share a specific highlight or takeaway. But yeah, I, that's exactly how I go through content. I grab the link and I share it in our competitive intelligence channel or active learning channel um, with the company. So that's great. That's great uh, input. Right. Now let's let's talk about, you know, you've been on a lot of uh, podcast circuits. Um, I've seen you do this during your Bonjour days. There were times where, you know, you just started you, your CEO and a couple of others. I think within a quarter, you hit about 200 podcasts. And similarly, I've seen you being extremely active on Quora and you have a course uh, that you offer there. Now, let's, let's, from that perspective, I would love to know how much of a contribution do your own assets like blogs and your own podcast do? And what is the contribution of an external asset? And uh, how do you make sure that your personal assets that you develop inside the organization are actually relevant to your audience? Yeah, yeah, great question. So let me start with the external assets. So one of the ways that I look at organic channels is through the lens of amplification. So what that means is when I produce content, how am I getting that in front of more relevant audience people? So one of the reasons I was a strong advocate and I've had a really good experience with podcast guesting is you're having the opportunity to share a meaningful message where you can build trust with your target audience by showing that you have an aptitude and you have a robust understanding in that specific target area. And in some ways, it's the same on social channels like LinkedIn, like on Quora. There's an audience that already exists and lives in those spaces. So I think that there's some strong value from amplification. But here's the other side of the coin. It seems that every year, almost every quarter, there's new things that are dropping. We had GDPR. We're about to launch a new thing that's stripping pixel tracking. 
that is coming soon, right? And so we have all of these things that are constantly making it harder for us to operate on these external platforms. So what does that mean? It means that when you run a newsletter and you get information that's directly contributed by a customer who says, here's my chief pain point, or here's my industry, or here's my whatever that you collect with consent, there's an incredible amount of value to having control over that right? And so that could be a blog, that could be a newsletter, but those owned assets, I believe are going to be the future. And I won't go off on a, on a total tangent on AI. I know AI is the buzzy word, so I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole, but I do want to say that owning unique data sets, I believe will be a competitive advantage of the future. When you have access to that, that's what feeds these LLMs. That's what feeds these models. So when you have access to unique data, there's a tremendous amount of value even in where we're going, right? And <clears throat> the ability for you to educate that model to provide a more personalized experience, to provide a more segmented experience, that's going to, there's already parts of that that are possible within a lot of like marketing automation tools. That is going to become dramatically easier where it is going to do it for you. The, you know, how do I use the right tags and the right dynamic content and the right journey AI is going to help you do that. But what AI is going to need is the right relevant data points. So strongly encourage folks to be thinking about how to build these owned assets over the next 12 months to bring that data in. And I also just want to note a battle that I've been fighting for a long time in the marketing world is people are like, opt-ins can just have a name and an email. Don't ask for anything else. It's going to kill you. And I just, I don't believe in that. I believe that people that come to you with real intent will offer and give up that information. I've tested this across tons of newsletters and owned assets that I've run. And I find that 80 plus percent when I make a field optional, like I ran a, a growth newsletter and I asked people, what is your biggest growth challenge? Because I wanted to send different content depending on where people were coming from. Um, and 80 plus percent of people answered that question even when it was optional. So I want to encourage people to ask the questions, but then also use that information to create a better experience for their users. No, two things I absolutely love from that. One is uh, the point about data set, because you have something internal that is very informative, that can give a significant takeaway for your listeners, and that's unique to you, and it's important for you to build and share it. And um, can't agree more with respect to the second part where you said that, ask those more questions. It's not about just getting those contacts. Uh, because this is one, again, one experiment when, uh, you know, during the Avuma days, one of the things that I saw that was different from most companies is as any PLG organization, you know, you would try to get signups with any email and then struggle to uh, kind of qualify all the junk versus this. And at Avuma, what the guys did is that, hey, let's forget all of those things. You either do uh, um, SSO through your Gmail or Microsoft, which means you have to use your business account. Otherwise, you can't sign in. And that kind of cleaned up a whole lot of unnecessary junk out of it right off the bat. So it's it's like, you know, it's not about the numbers, but making sure that there is substance into it. And you know these people enough uh, because, you know, trust is something that needs to operate from both sides. I, I love those takeaways. Right. So let's, let's now uh, talk about the other part of content now. Um, it's on one side, you create this, but, and the next side is all about distribution. Now, everybody talks and it feels like, you know, hey, we need to do great distribution. We need to do great promotion. And it's not just about uh, sharing content here and there or making a couple of more snippets from a podcast. But let's let's hear your perspective about what does it really mean to have a distribution plan? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question because it's talked about in so many different capacities. And I'll tell you what I've found works for me and actually kind of how I've structured this in a real context. So the first kind of blunt part about it is, who is sharing this? Who is helping get this message out in front of more people? I think one of the first barriers is people produce content in a silo. And because so much content is so promotional, the idea is, well, who would want to share this promotional content for my brand? And my response to that is, that's a great point. If nobody wants to share your content, it's probably too promotional. It's probably not the kind of content that you're really going to be able to get in front of hundreds of thousands of people. It's really just down funnel content. So even asking yourself that question, and if, if your answer to that is, well, why would anyone want to share it? That's your first problem, right? Once you take a step down, you look at, well, what kind of content gets backlinks? What kind of content do people share? 
It's genuinely valuable. It could be, you know, a paddle state of the SaaS industry. I've referenced that myself in numerous contexts. It could be, uh, you know, SASters, certain pricing pieces they've done, or, you know, there's so many examples. The point is, it's content that is genuinely valuable that typically comes from kind of some firsthand research that you can link out to. So the first step is when you build a content plan, right? You say, okay, we're going to do this push on this sector. We're going to focus on SaaS or we're going to focus on e-commerce. And you start to line up all the things that you're going to publish. Oh, we're going to put a a podcast is going out here. A blog is going to get published here. What I want folks to do is in tandem with that content plan, I want you to have an actual written out distribution plan. Because what it means is when I'm launching this blog, I also have on my actual plan, this partner is going to be sharing it out to the newsletter. I'm doing a collab with this person where we're going to be a a guest blog is coming out right here. That Friday, I'm hopping on a webinar and I'm going to have a conversation here. The next week, I'm going to be a guest on the show and we're talking about this. That's a distribution plan. You're taking that core message and you're having it show up in five to 10 more places, but you're doing it in a way that's structured. You're not just putting content out there and then going out and saying, hey, would you like this? Would you share this? Would you engage this? You're coming in with a plan ahead of time to the right fit people to amplify that and make sure that it gets wings. And so that when I say distribution and when I say building a distribution plan, um, that's how I think about that. And it's making you get 10x the impact and the overall impressions and engagement that you would otherwise around a piece of content. Right. So which typically means that you start thinking about it even uh, while you're coming up with your content strategy and the topics and all of that. And then uh, while you write, probably it's also about getting the right kind of people involved to give their inputs, you know, uh, bring them into the equation so that they also feel empowered to share those content. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. So a good example would be like deliverability, right? Deliverability is obviously an issue that's important to our team at Active Campaign. We send emails. But if we if we make it so narrow where we just say deliverability at active campaign, right? Well, now none of these outside third parties want to share this like company branded content. Instead, if we just do a really good research project where we talk about all the factors you look at with deliverability, what to understand, that's information that we can reach out to hundreds of folks if it's really good research and say, here's the new findings, here's the changes, here's how Gmail's treating things differently versus Yahoo. Here's, you know, and it's genuinely helpful and, and proliferable content, right? So that's that's the change in thinking between purely branded versus content that absolutely ties to what you do as a brand, but is generally digestible by a much larger audience and therefore shareable. And um, since you brought about uh, Active Campaign, uh, the thing that I've recently observed and I was actually surprised is that you guys have a significant customer base. Uh, I don't know if it's probably more than HubSpot, I guess. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, how how do you leverage your voice of the customer in terms of uh, content? And um, does that fit into your content piece? Does that fit into your social media piece? So where does that actually come in? Yeah, 100%. So when I came into the organization, um, one of the first stats that just stunned me out of the gate is they said, we have 185,000 customers. We actually have, I forget what it was at the time, like 15,000 or 20,000 <laughs> oh more than HubSpot. <laughs> And I was like blown away by that. But I was also, as I started to look at the organization, I started looking at our footprint. I said, man, we are way quieter though. We are way quieter than some of our major competitors. And so this kind of spurred in me, we have all these customers, like we need to bring this voice out because in the same vein of non-promotional content, I believe that the most trusted asset that people have, the most trusted thing is when they hear about it from a peer right? Another customer, a partner, a person in the ecosystem, a user. And so I basically said, as a starting point, I'm going to touch base. I'm going to start having conversations and ask these people if they're willing to share their stories. And some people were a little bit, there was a little bit of trepidation. Well, what are you paying them? Are they going to do this? And I said, no, I'm not going to do any of that. We're just going to reach out and see whether people are open and sharing their stories. And if, if nobody is willing to share their story, that's a red flag because we have a big customer base. And so that would be a problem. But what I found has been so tremendous. We just have dozens and dozens of people every week that are hopping on channels like LinkedIn and they're talking about why they chose it or why they switched over from other systems or specific use cases. And it all has come from just reaching out to folks and essentially asking them saying, your story is important. What people really care about is not us active campaign, just posting feature update, feature update. They want to hear about you. What are people in their industry doing? 
And when they hear, this is what an e-commerce company did to get this result. This is what a nonprofit did. This is what a software company did. That's what resonates. And I've had people that reached back out to me. They said, oh, when you talked about how you moved from MailChimp plus HubSpot free CRM to AC because of the integration with Segment, I'm a small SaaS team and we use Segment. And actually that inspired me to look into that same thing. And I'm like, that to me is perfect. That's exactly what I want. I don't want to run an ad that says, go switch because of our integration with Segment. I want that voice to come from customers. So it it's early stage. And there's obviously ways we're going to need to look to systematize this and, and find those key inflection points when people are either upgrading or when there are different happiness measures, maybe NPS surveys. There's lots of things we'll have to think about in phase two of this. But phase one, I've just been so overwhelmed and excited by how eager the customers that we've reached out to have been to say like, you know, yes, I'd love to do this. How can I help? How can I support? And we have like a document we've been collecting where we just have like hundreds of names, of people that haven't even shared yet, but are like, yeah, I want to do this. How can I help? What do you, what does this want to look like? And um, so it's been remarkable. And we've, we've really tried hard to keep it totally open-ended too, to say, look, we don't want there to be a structure. We don't want to tell you what to put, like, just share your experience, share your story, your narrative, what's been valuable for you. So I digress. I won't go down the rabbit hole, but I strongly encourage folks to take away here is regardless of whether you're big or small, how can you get your customers involved with your story? How can you get them sharing? And people who maybe are on the sidelines thinking, yeah, but I've tried to get reviews before and it's really hard and I'm not sure if I can, you know, mobilize people. A little change of perspective a little bit on this. Let me explain to you another part of of what we did here. Besides telling them to share their stories, another piece we did is I said, we are going to hop in on your post. We're going to comment. We're going to amplify. We're going to reshare. We're going to add this to our newsletters. Like your story matters to us as an organization and we're going to give it wings. So suddenly we're changing the script a little bit from, can you just give us something to, yes, they're posting about us, which is awesome. But in return, we're going to amplify. We've had tons of people come back and said, that was my best performing post of the year. I got 20,000 impressions on a LinkedIn post. I've never gotten that before. Like, thank you so much for 87 members of your team hopping in. So this idea of how can you create reciprocity in that relationship? How can you make it not just, you know, take, but we're going to give back. We're going to give you visibility. We're going to return what we can on our end. That starts to change the game. So for people who want to um, try something like this, like a voice to the customer or social amplification campaign, I would start there. Start by asking, what am I going to do in return? Don't make it money. Don't make it anything that, you know, I don't know that that to me just doesn't feel like the right vibe, but instead just say, we want to be partners with you and helping you be successful, providing you visibility in return. You know, again, you know, I've said this offline multiple times that uh, I wish we both were in the same room in the same city. I would give you multiple high fives. <laughs> I love this so much because a lot of people, they never make use of, uh, you know, or they never empower their customers enough. And it's often thought about like, hey, we are not doing enough brand. Yes, we are uh, too quiet uh, and people don't realize the value of who we are. But then right there, we have a huge asset that is handy. And it is all it takes is give them certain um, empowered aspects that they can come and talk about. In fact, I, I love that example where you said, uh, you know, uh, these customers, that was their best performing post. And that excites them because you also promote it from your side. It That makes all the difference, you know. Uh, at the end of the day, the difference is that you're not saying that Active campaign has this integration. It is this customer who's saying that I had this problem. I use these things to do this. And then when another customer or a prospect hears this for them, it's authentic information coming from this person because they were also trying to solve the same kind of problem. And it is a neutral source giving that information. In fact, the flip side of it, not the flip side, I'm saying something similar that I've attempted uh, for my agency is when I give people content, Instead of just giving them a blog post or something like that, you know, uh, for a couple of clients, I tried and tested this. I said, let me also write down a LinkedIn post for you. Uh, how, how do I, how do you put out this blog post? Don't just post it. Don't just give the link. Just uh, make a post of this. And I had optimized it in such a way that it looks neat on mobile and all of that. 
and very similar to your customers you know these guys came back and said hey you know what actually usually i get about 500 views or 1000 views this one got like 15k and i was surprised i'm like wow uh, they are happy <laughs> and then they said from this i've got three signups i'm like okay fantastic <laughs> it, it's what you're touching on what you touched an important thing for people to walk away with is is reciprocity partner relationships. If you're hopping on a podcast, how are you going to help co-promote? If you're going to do a collab with someone on a blog, how are you going to help co-promote? I can't tell you how much energy I've gotten from partners when if you just make any kind of lift on your side, hey, I sent this out to 10,000 people on our end, this this episode or this thing we did together. People are grateful. I know because I've been a podcast host, how grateful I've been when people make that extra lift on the partner side. And I've been doing partner collabs for gosh knows how long. So the bigger thing beyond just this project or this initiative is really when you focus on building relationships, ask yourself that question. Reciprocity. Creating those relationships happens when you start to give more from your side. You're going to get tremendous momentum. That's going to pay off in huge ways. And when you meet, when you build those, it's like me and you, Yag, we'll hop on a call. We'll talk about, you know, if you say, Hey, I'm working on this project. Can I spitball some ideas with you? I'll say, absolutely. And I know I can reach out to you and you'll do the same. That comes from the fact that we both give to each other. We both support, we both have that kind of dynamic. And so that's important. I think across the board for business. On that note, let's move to the second part of the podcast, which we call the rapid fire section. And here I'm going to shoot five pointed questions at you the questions may be short but the answers need not be let's go with the flow whatever comes yep. to your mind sounds you good ready? let's do it so here's question number one video or written content which one do you prefer and why so i'm gonna have to be honest here and go with written i want to say i love video i come from a video background and I, I think video is tremendous for a lot of reasons but i find that i often go for written because of that skimmability factor right because of that fact that i can often get to that one really salient insight and i can find it and digest it quickly i then also also like audio i know that wasn't one of the options but i listen to a lot of podcasts while i'm exercising while i'm doing chores while i'm out uh you know going somewhere and so um, that one is also a great medium for me. Absolutely. Majority of the information that I consume is when I'm on a treadmill in the gym and I'm listening to an audio. Absolutely the same thing. I wish there was, uh, you know, some good app that would help me immediately take notes as I'm listening, like mm. on a tumble, couple of clicks. That'd be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. Right. So here's um, question number two. When I was skimming across your uh, LinkedIn post for this episode, I came across this term called loyalty stage churn. Mm. I'd love to learn a little more about that. Yeah. So one of the things I've done a lot of work over the last 10 years around churn. And one of the mistakes I find that people make is they treat churn all together as a monolith. So one of the things I like to do is I found that there's a lot more actionability when you break it down by phase. So the first phase is zero to 30 days. It's activation. It's really not about results yet. It's about experience. Do people feel like it's intuitive? Do they feel like it's easy? Do they think this is a streamlined process? And then you get to the impact phase and the impact phase is all about driving results. Can this get you what you got the thing for? You asked about the final one. That's 180 days plus. And these ranges obviously can vary based on brand, but generally speaking, it's 180 days plus. This is someone who's come on board. They've seen results. They've stuck with the system. But now what? And so this is actually one of the least paid attention to churn stages, um, which is why I love to talk about it and educate. I think here it's all around relationships. Have you reached out and met that? Sometimes it can be, have you met customers in person? You know, Jason Lemkin is famous for saying that I've never had a customer churn who I met in person, right? So that can be applicable for some, for some larger businesses. Even if not, have you reached out to a customer with no agenda just to see how you can help them, right? Just a courtesy call, just reaching out. How are things going? Do you have any questions? Can I support you, right? Have you incorporated them into your process to treat them like a VIP by saying, I'm gonna release this new feature and I wanted to know, would you be able to give me some feedback, right? They feel special there. Have you reached out over the holidays and sent them a gift just to say, hey, I appreciate you being on this journey with us. I know you've been with us for three years now, right? Yada, yada, yada. I find that people will stay through hard times, those longer stage customers, if there is some sort of existing relationship. But if you've done nothing, if it's purely just the value of your product, then three years later, when the shiny object comes out and it looks cheaper and it looks whatever, 
they have no ties to you. You're just some big monolith, unknown name. They're going to jump ship. So if you want to solve for loyalty stage churn, ask yourself, what am I doing to create relationship? And like those four examples I gave, I think those are all specific things that you can do that will contribute to that relationship piece and reduce loyalty stage churn. No, love that because especially the way I understand loyalty, somebody I think recently told me that, hey, the there's nothing called loyalty. The, the interesting part is people become so convenient and comfortable with your product that change is hard at that moment. So it's, can you do something from your side to ensure that it's more sticky, either through relationship or some improvement or, or something that keeps them engaged? Otherwise, they're anyway going to move. You know, don't waste money on a loyalty program. Instead, engage with them better. Yeah, and, and that's such a good example. I won't I won't go down again the rabbit hole on this, but I'm also a big advocate for what I call active loyalty versus passive loyalty. Passive loyalty is like airline points, right? Or or some sort of like, you know, thing like a stamp card. Active loyalty is the things where when you think about what are brands in my life that I'm actually loyal to, right? I might think of the local Indian food place where they know my daughter and every time I come in, they they all come out of the kitchen and they say, hi, it's an amazing experience. And I'll always continue to go to Taste of the Himalayas in Carlsbad because it's such an amazing experience right there. Those relationship pieces, right? That's real loyalty. That's that's if they're, if they're closed for two weeks or if something comes up, of course, as soon as they're open again, I'm going to be back there. So I think changing that perspective from loyalty as this bucket to really active real loyalty is a, is a good mental switch. And I think one of the examples that I love when it comes to this is also uh, GitLab, you know, when their service crashed, they had this issue. Um, the customers were far more forgiving because they were immersed and they said, okay, it happens, uh, but you guys are good guys. We have enjoyed being with you for so long. So we are going to give you a pass and uh, continue to work with you. That happens because, you know, the it it was like from both sides and not just like, me take, 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 and not give anything at all. Absolutely love that. 100%. Cool. So here's um, question number three. What is your uh, reaction to the typical annual state of reports that comes up every now and then that says 20% open rates and less than 1% click is the norm? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, frustration is, is the first thing that, that jumps to mind. I, I think we've gotten so used to generic information when it comes to newsletters. Because, you know, if, if you think all the way back to when newsletters started, newsletters were kind of this amalgamation of everything. It's team updates, it's new hires, it's industry reports. And over time, people kind of started to look at it and say, we need to be more specialized, right? Because they found that those low engagement rates were because it was just this huge smorgasbord of everything for everyone, Right. So the first thing I think that is super important, the way I, I like to think about when you're building out uh, an email list, a newsletter, et cetera, start with a very clear goal on your end. What is this for? Is this to convert leads? Is this to build uh, confidence and retention amongst my customer base? Don't have it be the same thing for everyone. That's your first problem, right? Once you go a step below that, what you want to do is you want to set a crystal clear expectation. I am going to contact you at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time every Friday. I'm going to send you a growth use case for companies that grew from zero to 10 million ARR. And I'm going to give you three tips on how they did that. That's brilliant. I know exactly what I'm going to get. You've set the expectation. You've set the time, right? And then all you need to do is just deliver on that promise. Have clear subject lines that say how Calendly use social channels to grow from you know zero to 10. Awesome. Person knows exactly what they're getting. I ran my last growth oriented newsletter. I had over a 70% open rate. I had a 15% plus click through rate, right? And that just came from being very intentional about the type of content I sent and setting that clear expectation, not deviating from that. And also this is an important one. Like many things we've talked about, don't just use this as a promo engine. So many people, it's like, okay, here's this little tidbit that may be slightly valuable and then go buy my thing, go buy my thing. That's not relationship building, right? That doesn't, that doesn't build confidence. Instead, what I like to do, and this is a little bit more sophisticated maybe, but I like to actually look at exactly how someone interacts with my newsletter over the course of a month. And I actually use lead scoring to understand what are they clicking on? What are they opening? That customer who's hyper-engaged, ingesting all the content, doing all of, you know, clicking through the links, that person I might present or move towards that sales action quicker. Because they've shown they have real interest and there's this pairing, there's a match that makes sense. The person who opened one of my messages of the last six that I sent and didn't click on any links, 
I'm not going to spoil that relationship. That person is not at that stage. They need longer in the funnel to see value from you. So just doing something simple, like looking at, at that kind of lead scoring mentality, giving them points based on behaviors and tailoring based on that, I think is going to produce much better results. So I would encourage folks, don't get drawn into the trap. Don't believe that you can't get over 1% click-through rate or that you're, you're stuck at 20% because that's the industry norm. And folks have told you, oh, well, if you have a large, if you have a small list, maybe, but if you have a big list, it's impossible. Also completely false. I've worked with clients as a consultant that had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people on their list who were doing 40%, 50% open rates because they had good segmentation, because they set good expectations. So um, yeah, I would I would fight back against the, uh, the norm as being a, a predestined thing for people. It's also because a lot of these organizations, you know, the internal conversations are like, hey, what did you do the last month? that uh, got the signups higher uh, that we didn't do this month. And when you have that conversation, the thing is marketing doesn't work that way, right? So it's not just one switch that you turn on and everything begins to move. It's that you have to engage with people at a certain perspective. You have to understand, put yourself in the shoe at times, you know, you look at it, will I spend time on this? It's okay on one side, writing it for um, the search engines and writing it for the length and all those things are fine. But again, you don't want to be creating invisible content. You want to make something that is useful and people make use of that and accomplish something. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to build trust. I, I love the fact that uh, you challenge those numbers and I think that should be the norm. It's an easy way out to say that, hey, we are doing better than the industry numbers, but it takes some heart to go out and say that, hey, this is the standard that I'll set for myself. Totally. Here's question number four. What is that one thing that you think you still haven't mastered when it comes to growth marketing? Oh man. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that I definitely have not mastered. It's a continually moving journey. I, I think when I think about that question, one of the most challenging things in growth is finding something that's perfectly scalable that continues to layer consistently there's so many changes in the macro environment. There's so many changes in SaaS that what you often find is you start to see some momentum, but things are changing. And so then it dips down and then it comes up again and it dips down. And anyone who's been in this industry for any period of time is, can likely relate uh, to that challenge and those kind of like ups and downs that come year to year. So I think that I'm continually looking at very stable channels, channels that are as stable as possible. I'm trying to get more... Um, kind of get more depth of experience and more testing and more things under my belt to show where those points are. But that's something that I definitely think about a lot is stability of a growth lever. And it takes some time. It takes even years sometimes to see where you can kind of go there. But that's one that I, I definitely always am trying to optimize and always trying to improve is the scalability of a lever that I do for growth. Right. So here's the final rapid fire. What is that one metric that you would highly recommend everyone to measure growth on? And also that one metric that you would recommend not to measure growth by? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. It, it's surprisingly actually somewhat of a complex question, even though it seems very uh, simple. One metric that people in, in you know the B2B SaaS world might be familiar with that I'm a big advocate for is an NRR, right? Net revenue retention. And so NRR looks at, of your existing customer base, how much expansion do you have against churn and compression? The reason I like this metric is that I find that it's a very good indicator of kind of the health of an organization overall. And in an age where this is kind of, you know, it's been called by a lot of different leaders in the SaaS industry, the year of efficient SaaS, right? You see that multiples have come down a little bit and people are all asking, these funds are asking, what is your NRR? What is your churn? What is your payback period? All of those kind of questions. So having an NRR, if you have 100% plus NRR, that's phenomenal, right? That's a really good sign. Obviously it varies. Enterprise really wants to shoot for like that 120% number. SMB, honestly, if it's 90% plus is very good. Most SMB focused or even a little bit below that. Um, but that's one metric that I really like. Now I will say that the caveat to that is that there's a lot of parts that go into this, right? There's the expansion part, there's the churn part, there's the compression part. And so it is somewhat complicated. You do have to break it down and have a really nuanced discussion about those constituent parts. But I still like to call it out as a, as a top line um, metric. The one that I would say that I don't like, this is kind of uh, gonna be interesting, is just ARR, 
right? ARR, and I'll explain why. So annual recurring revenue, and people are like, well, that's like the main thing we track. Like, what the heck are you talking about? The challenge with ARR is you can say, we, we, did, we have a 10 million ARR, right? And you spent, and one team, they did it bootstrapped. The other team, they spend $100 million to get that gross ARR up to 10 million. And so you're not really seeing the full story in, in that case, right? Like, sure, you got this revenue, but if it costs you 100 million, your burn rate is so freaking high, right? That like at any moment, the wheels can just completely come off that bus. And if, if those aren't good fit, if those customers churn, you're just in a completely different scenario than the company that built that stable bootstrap company to 10 million ARR. So I, I think that there's a lot of metrics that are much more indicative than ARR. And when you look at sometimes like, you know, for instance, I was looking at the S1 for Clavio, which, which recently went public. And one of the things that jumped out to me when I was reading through that report is when they said there was a 29 month payback period. That was crazy. Like in a world where you're trying to get under a year and it, they were, they caveated it by 29 months, but recently over the last year, this new cohort is 14 months. Regardless, the whole point was it had a huge payback period, which to me is indicative. Like it's amazing what they've done and the, and the numbers and the growth, but they've spent a tremendous amount of money, hundreds of millions in investment to fuel that. So it's just something that I think people need to be cognizant of. And if you're in this world and you're an SMB and you get to your first million or you get to your first 5 million, if you're doing that bootstrap, first off, amazing. Congratulations to you because that is an incredible feat without bringing on a lot of outside capital. Um, and if you are bringing on capital, that's okay. But especially right now, think about efficiency. Think about keeping that burn rate low and really creating that sustainable um, floor. That's what I'd recommend for people. This is my most favorite part of the entire conversation so far because you know many of the things that you said it's it's a realization that took me a few years in the beginning of my career i was pretty much like most other people saying that hey um arr is the most important number that i would look at revenue is everything but then one thing that i realized about nrr is that it could be the difference between your company getting to 10 million in five years versus 10 years because it's about also on one side, it's a leaky bucket, there is churn. And on the other side, the expansion is not happening. And very much like the Playview example that you give, if somebody has to stay for a minimum of three years for the customer to be profitable to you, it is a very bad place to be in. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> tough. And there's also, you know, on that too, there's also so many interesting things on like in this in the SaaS world, like margin too. Like one of the things that's so interesting is like SaaS companies historically have these really good margins, right? Once you hit scale, you're at that, you know, 80, 90% margin. But what's really been interesting is that companies like back in 2021 in the heyday when like all this money was pouring in, people started to blend stuff that was coming in as actual recurring revenue and all the service oriented revenue, they just started to throw it all together in the same bucket, even though one might have a 30% margin and one might have an 80 to 90% margin. So you're starting to see in 2023 that they're starting to be very particular, right? Like what is actually recurring revenue, right? You're starting to see even three to one, which was the golden standard for LTV to CAC. I've heard a lot of brands coming out, a lot of funds coming out and saying, no, it's four to one now, right? And that payback period, we want it under a year. And that NRR, we want it over 100%. So when you look at what they're focusing on, the writing in the clouds, once again, is efficiency. It's efficient growth, which is, again, you know, one of the reasons I'm so bullish on organic motions. I'm not saying there's not a place for paid, but I think organic motions have so much value right now because they can be very efficient. They can bring that CAC down for brands and provide stuff that layers over time. Absolutely. And 2023 is the year of efficiency, as you alluded to. And I, I strongly also have a belief system internally that uh, probably there are going to be much lesser companies that are going to survive 2023 and the, only the most efficient, efficient ones are. And already we have seen a lot of companies close down this year. And fingers crossed, I hope it is not the way the entire industry goes. 
Yeah. All right. So uh, that is a great place to uh, wrap our conversation here. But for all our listeners, um, what is the best place to find you? Yeah. So two things I would kind of throw to people. So on LinkedIn, I post a lot of content. If you're interested for more stuff like what we're talking about today, just go to Casey Hill, right? Uh, LinkedIn forward slash Casey Hill. You can find me. Um, and this is the kind of growth and stories from firsthand experience are the kind of things that I'm posting about all the time. Um, and if you're looking for a system, if you're in the market for something in the marketing automation or CR CRM world, um, feel free to either reach out to me or just go to activecampaign.com um, and check it out. And uh, do you have a parting message that you'd like to share with our audience? These are predominantly SaaS content marketers and uh, majorly from the US and parts of Asia. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm going to just say, and I know this is a broad one, but I really want to encourage folks to focus on that creative aspect. In a world of AI, in a world where content is so saturated, what's going to win is creativity. And sometimes creativity can it can be misunderstood. I'm not gonna digress here, just a really quick example, which is that Patrick Campbell got on stage and he said the word churn like a thousand times at a conference. And behind him, there was a projector that was playing the words. That video got shared thousands of times. I can guarantee you it got shared 10x more than any other talk because it was creative. I know I shared it in with my team and said, this is crazy. Do you see what he just did? So remember the importance of creativity, except that you might be misunderstood sometimes, but ultimately that can be the thing that really breaks through the noise and can be the thing that differentiates you. And if you find that creative person on your team, if you find it as a hire, hold on to them. Because I've been in this marketing world now for 10 years, and I can tell you, I've met a lot of really smart data, analytics, those types of folks, but I've met far fewer truly creative, truly visionary folks. That is the skill set that when I'm looking at, when I'm hiring, I'm lasering in on those types of people because I see it's a tremendous value to an organization. Absolutely. Love that message. All right. So uh, thank you so much, Casey. It was wonderful almost an hour i didn't even realize that uh you know we spent that much amount of time i'm sure all the listeners had a lot of things to take away and lots of notes to write down but really really appreciate your time to join us here and share your thoughts always a pleasure always a pleasure